um, today's Bible reading will be from the book of Malachi. So Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. So I'll be reading from two separate passages. Um, first passage will be Malachi 1, verse 1 to 14. And the second passage will be Malachi chapter 2, verse 10 to 16. So Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. A prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his hill country into a wasteland, and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? by saying the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now plead with God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple door so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying, the Lord's table is defiled and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, lame, or diseased, and I offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord. Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable meal in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. And now, you priests, this warning is for you. If you do not listen, and if you do not... Sorry, um, I'll start from chapter, uh, verse 10. So do we not all have one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife is of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? 
You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard, and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard, and do not be unfaithful. Thanks, Samuel. Uh, I was so encouraged uh, when Kay shared with us that uh, Bible reading, uh, Isaiah 41 verse 10 uh, because on, uh, in my Bible is a little, a little bookmark, actually, uh, which has that verse on it. Fürchte dich nicht, ich bin mit dir. Yeah, it's in German. Ich halte dich durch die rechte Hand meiner Gerechtigkeit. There you go. Uh, and I read that every week before I preach. So thank you for that, Kay. It's a great encouragement to me also. Uh, let's, uh, let's bow together as we uh, come to God's word. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we pray that you would... Uh, Give us what we don't have, uh, that you would teach us what we don't know, uh, and that you would make us what we are not yet. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, life is uh, full of relationships. Uh, Relationships, as we've heard already, with parents, relationships with friends or husbands and wives or uh, girlfriends or boyfriends or whatever it is. But the truth is, isn't it, that some relationships that we're part of are better than other relationships. Some relationships are going really well, they work really well, but some relationships are hard work and, and they're not going that great. Uh, Two married people on the brink of divorce are in a relationship, but it's just not a great relationship. Two friends who are constantly arguing, constantly going at each other, they're in a relationship, but it's not a great relationship. As Christians, we often talk about being in a relationship with God, having a relationship with God. In some ways, actually, all of humanity has a relationship with God. The question is not whether we have a relationship with God. The question is whether the relationship that we have is going well or not going well. Is it a good relationship? Is it a working relationship? Or is it not a relationship? Is it a relationship of hostility? In some ways, in many ways, that's what the book of Malachi is all about. In Malachi, God is speaking to people who have a relationship with him, but it's just not a very good relationship. And so God sends Malachi, Malachi means my messenger, God sends Malachi to do, if you like, relationship counselling. He sends Malachi with a message for his people to tell the people how the relationship is really going. And as we listen in on Malachi today and over the next couple of weeks, it's an opportunity for us to hear God speaking to us as well and for us to reflect on how is our relationship with God going as well. We may have a relationship with God, but what's the quality of the relationship? Is it working well or is it not working well? So what's the message then that God has for his people through Malachi? Well, the message he starts with is very simple. He says, I have loved you. I have loved you. How do the people respond to that? Well, they ask in verse 2, 
how have you loved us? Suppose for a moment that your uh, husband or your wife comes to you and says, I, I love you. And you say, how have you loved me? Or maybe your dad or your mum comes to you and says, I love you. And you say, how have you loved me? How do you think that kind of response would go down? You see, there are actually few comments in the world more precisely calculated to destroy a relationship than that question. How have you loved me? It's deeply manipulative, actually, and implies the thought, if you love me, well then prove it, because you haven't already. Well, that's what God says to the people. He says, I love you, and they say, how have you loved us? And God, in his mercy, answers that question. He says in verse 2, Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. God is referring back to two brothers that we first meet in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Uh, those two brothers are Jacob and Esau. And before either of those brothers were born, uh, God told their mother, Rebecca that uh, he would upend the normal order of relationships and the normal way that things work and that the older child would serve the younger child. Esau would serve Jacob. God set his love for his own particular reason on Jacob over Esau. And that love and that, uh, that election, that choice of Jacob was seen not only in the individual lives of those two people, but also in their descendants. God had loved and protected Jacob and his descendants, the people of Israel. But God had rejected or hated and, uh, the, the, uh, Esau and his descendants and he had turned their homeland and their inheritance into a wasteland. Now, please don't think that the nation of Edom was innocent and blameless. Uh, the Edomites, were, were, uh, they were the descendants of Esau. They were vindictive and cruel. They kept attacking the people of Israel. They were trying to overthrow Israel. Uh, they were trying to sort of undo them and ruin them. So for God to destroy uh, the descendants of Esau, the Edomites, was actually to protect Israel. But please also don't think that the Israelites themselves were innocent and blameless either. They were just as evil as the Edomites. They were just as much, uh, they just as much deserved God's judgment and his wrath as the people of Edom did. But in the case of the people of Israel, God covered his wrath, not because of anything that they had done, but because of his sovereign uh, choice and love. He'd saved them, protected them, because he determined to do that in his mercy and grace. How had he loved them? He'd loved them by showing them that undeserved grace and mercy. But evidently, that wasn't the kind of love and, uh, and, and grace that the people had in mind. 
the way that the people of Israel were responding, I think, is a bit like, uh, you know, as children we, we responded or as children we do respond. Uh, a child wants something, they want a new bike, they don't get it, and they say to their parents, you don't care about me, you don't love me, because you didn't give me the thing that I wanted. And of course the truth is, isn't it, that actually their parents have been pouring themselves out for the last 12 years or however long it's been in love and in kindness. They've put their lives on hold to feed them, to change their nappies, to teach them to walk, to teach them to read, to play games with them. They've spent countless hours, thousands of dollars, raising their children, feeding them, clothing them, buying them presents. How have you loved us? How has God loved us? Well, where do we begin? With creation, with sunshine, with the stars, with the rain, with the ocean, the fish, cats, pets, gifts of hearing, taste, seeing, hearing, smelling, with the gift of uh, writing and reading literature, with the, the ability to climb mountains or swim at the beach or uh, to play music or listen to music. Where do we begin? Not a day goes by when we are not recipients of God's extraordinary and extravagant love. And all that is without mentioning that God has loved us in the most extraordinary way by sending his own son to die in order to reconcile us to himself. We were his enemies and yet he sent his son in love to deliver us from sin and death and judgment, to raise us up with Christ, to seat us in the heavenly places, to give us an inheritance in the age to come, to bring us to maturity in Christ, to knit us together into the body of Christ. God has given us extraordinary blessings. And yet, it can be so tempting, can't it, to say to God, how have you loved us? so tempting to wallow in self-pity. Nobody loves me. But that's never true. God has loved us. Maybe not in the way that we wanted. Maybe he hasn't given us the job that we want or the husband or the wife that we want or the children that we want or the mind or the body that we want. But please don't think that God hasn't loved you because he hasn't loved you in the way that you want him to. God has loved you more than it's possible for anyone to love anyone. Here is God's message. I have loved you. So that's the first part of Malachi's message to this people. God loves them, but they don't believe it. The second part of the message that God has for his people is that the people treat God worse than they treat their fellow human beings. God begins by appealing to what is common in human relationships. So he says in verse 6, a son honours his father, a slave honours his master. That's, just, that's what, how it works. If I'm a father, where is the honour due to me, God says. If I'm a master, where is the respect due to me, says the Lord Almighty. It is you priests, 
he says, who show contempt for my name. But again, here comes the question back to God, but you ask, how have we shown contempt for, for your name? God says, by offering defiling food on my altar, verse 7. And again, in shocked disbelief, the people ask, how have we defiled you? What's really frightening, I think, about the book of Malachi is that these people, these people are in a bad relationship with God and they are completely unaware of the fact. God keeps saying, this is how it is, and they keep saying, I don't see that. How have we defiled you? Well, God says in verse 18, this is the way that they've been defiling God. Verse 8 and verse 13, sorry. Instead of bringing the best offerings that they could bring, instead of bringing the best that they could bring in gratitude to God, they were bringing the leftovers, the scraps. They were bringing the animals that were no good to them, that is the blind, the crippled, the injured and the diseased. And they expected God to be over the moon with their generosity. Verse 8, when you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? And if that's not bad enough, they're bringing the scraps to God rather than the best that they have. If that's not bad enough, look at verse 13. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously. They're bringing the scraps and even that's too hard for them. Goodness me, I can barely do this, they say to themselves. And although God uh, blames the priests for this in verse 6, it's clear that by the end of the chapter, the fault lies not just with the priests, but with all the people. The defiled sacrifices that the priests are offering to God are the defiled sacrifices that the people are bringing for the priests to offer. How does God feel? He's outraged. He's the great king. His name is to be feared among the nations, verse 14. But serving him is too much trouble for the people. And they think that he'll be happy with their second-rate offerings. Please notice that in all this offensive behavior, the people still appeared to be serving God. It wasn't that they'd stopped bringing their offerings or turning up at the temple every day. It's just that what they were bringing was absolute rubbish. Now, you and I don't bring uh, bulls and goats to church with us on Sunday, but how the New Testament uh, takes up the language of sacrifice and of priestly service helps us to understand how we should apply Malachi's rebuke to us today. So the writer of Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 15, describes praise and lips that confess the name of Jesus. He describes those as sacrifices to God. So you might come to church on Sunday, you might praise God, but actually your heart isn't really in it. You could be singing at the top of your voice, but actually your heart is far from God. You might confess your trust in Jesus, but actually your heart is a long way away from trusting in Jesus. 
What you're bringing is crippled, diseased praise. It's not that you stop singing, but you just sing half-heartedly. The New Testament describes other sacrifices. The writer of Hebrews describes doing good and sharing with others as sacrifices that please God. Or Philippians 4 verse 18, Paul describes the support of his gospel ministry as offerings and sacrifices. So it's one thing to put money in the collection bag or send off some money to a mission worker or give some money to somebody in church who needs help. But there's a difference between giving the best to God and giving God what's left over. There's a difference between giving to God the first fruits and giving to God what's left after you've spent everything on yourself. Again, the problem is not that we stop giving. The problem is that we give half-heartedly. Last week too, we saw that in 2 Timothy, God calls us to give our lives to him as an offering, to pour ourselves out in self-giving to God. God wants us to give every aspect of our lives to him, but so often we give God the leftovers of our lives, the leftovers of our energy or the leftovers of our time or our brain space. Giving God the best of ourselves doesn't just mean, you know, that you need to do more work at church. That might be a tiny part of it. More importantly, what it means is that we give to God every moment of our days, every moment of our lives as a gift of gratitude to God. Every moment that we spend is given to God in service to him. Half-hearted, distracted service is displeasing to God. Now, there's a sense in which everything that we bring to God is uh, imperfect. Uh, it's only through Jesus Christ that anything that we can offer to God is acceptable to God. But there's a difference between, say, a professional who hastily cobbles something together and a child who puts their heart and soul into making something for their parents, which maybe doesn't, still doesn't look as good as the work of the professional, but actually was done with effort and devotion and kindness. Our gifts to God through Jesus Christ ought to be like the child's gift, like an old soup can with paddle pop sticks stuck on the outside, that our parents used to hold their spare pencils or something like that. Our gifts to God are imperfect offerings, but offered through Jesus, they're gifts of love and gratitude, which are received by our loving Father with joy and delight. So the relationship between God and his people was not going well. They didn't believe that he loved them and they were despising God, not with their words, but with their actions by bringing their second-rate sacrifices. The last relationship issue uh, that we're looking at this morning comes in that section in chapter 2 that we read, 
from uh, chapter 2, verse 10 to 16. And in verse 13, God says to the people, Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears, you weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. And again, the people are asking, why? Why isn't God paying attention? They've got no idea. The answer, according to verse 11, is that the people have broken faith with God by marrying women who worship other gods. So they're marrying people who don't follow God. That same issue comes up in the New Testament as well. Paul warns uh, the Corinthian church, the Christians there, he warns people uh, about marrying those who aren't Christians. He tells them to marry in the Lord. Uh, God doesn't want us to uh, marry people who don't share the same commitment that we have to God because our relationship with God is the most central, the most important thing that we have in our life. And to marry a person, to enter into the most, uh, the most intimate human relationship with somebody who doesn't share our deepest life commitment is putting ourselves in a very difficult position. It's putting the relationship in a very difficult position. It doesn't matter whether the gods that that person serves are the gods of Hinduism or Islam or Western materialism. The problem is that being in that relationship brings attention. Either we put the relationship first and God comes second, or we put God first and the relationship suffers enormous strain. Now, as Paul says in Corinthians, that doesn't mean that uh, if you're married to somebody who isn't a Christian, that you ought to divorce them. Uh, rather, the point is, insofar as we have that opportunity, we have that choice, we ought not to pursue that kind of relationship. But that's what the people in Malachi's day were doing. They were marrying people who followed other gods, and that was dragging them away from their relationship with God. But the worst thing about this situation was not only that, but they were actually divorcing their existing wives in order to marry those people who were following other gods. So verse 14, you ask why? That is, why doesn't God pay attention to us anymore? It's because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You've been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. God's purpose in marriage is that two become one and remain one. Whenever a marriage breaks up, that's always deeply grievous to God. And it's, needless to say, grievous to the people who are involved. That's a hard thing, isn't it, for those who have, uh, who have divorced their spouse or who have been divorced, uh, they've been the victims of divorce. It's, it's a, a great sadness, a great, uh, great regret often. And of course, there's grace in Jesus for those whose lives have been upended by divorce. But God's point here is this. Don't do it. As far as it depends on you, don't do it. Marriage is precious to God and he wants us to honour marriage by keeping it and protecting it. And he wants us to honour him by putting our relationship above, with him 
above entering into marriage relationships with people who don't share our commitment to him. Well, the end result uh, of the people's failure to do that is that God will not accept their sacrifices. Verse 12, as for the man who does this, whoever he is, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Even if they weep and wail and flood the altar of God with tears, God won't listen. I think there are a few things more terrifying than the idea that God might stop listening to us. But I don't think the principle here is that God merely stops listening to people if they divorce their wives and marry people who don't, who, who don't follow him. The underlying principle across these, both these chapters is that God stops listening when our cries to him are undergirded by rampant hypocrisy. We're crying out to God, save me! And at the same time we say, how have you loved us? We're crying out to God, save me! And at the same time we're willingly bringing the worst that we have and hoping that God won't notice. We're crying out to God, save me! And we're abandoning our marriages and living in all kinds of ways that God detests. We come to God seeking his forgiveness and fling ourselves into sin at the next opportunity. We come to church offering our praise to God but secretly nurture 20-year-old grudges. We offer God our money but it's money that we've saved because we aren't rightly paying for the movies that we watch or the music that we listen to or the software that we use. God doesn't want it. Service for God that masks underlying hypocrisy is not okay. And we need to turn away from that. We need to repent of that hypocrisy. We need to confess it to God. We need to seek his grace. When we do that, God is willing to receive us. He's willing to listen. He's willing to hear and forgive. But if we hang on to that hypocrisy, there's no hope. Because God will stop listening. Malachi is God's heaven-sent relationship counsellor. And God wants you to examine the quality of your relationship with him. Others around you might be fooled about the relationship that you have with God. You might even be fooled about the relationship that you have with God. But God isn't fooled. If your relationship with God is in a bad way, Malachi invites you to acknowledge that to God and to deal with it and to seek his grace again in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that uh, we're not always aware of uh, exactly how our relationship with you is going. Sometimes we can be blinded by our sin. Uh, And Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes so that we might see how things are really going. Uh, And Lord, not not only that we might... uh, see but that we might be able to respond and either be encouraged by the good things that you're doing in our life or find the opportunity to repent and to seek your grace again in in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord forgive us if we've questioned your love. Help us to see how great and precious is the love that you've given us in the Lord Jesus Christ. The love that you pour out every day and so many different ways in the little gifts as well as the big gifts that you put uh, in our lives. Lord, forgive us if we brought to you the, the worst, the second best of what we have to give. Lord, help us to give to you the very best that we have of our lives and our very selves. Lord, help us not to live hypocritical lives but lives of honest and genuine commitment to you as the God who loves us and who has saved us in Jesus Christ. We ask it for his name's sake. Amen.